Welcome to Promiscuous Listening, where we take a cue from John Milton's 1644 tract, Areopagitica, in its promotion of reading promiscuously to learn from the diversity of voices in 21st century Milton studies. My name is Marissa Greenberg, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my conversations with scholars about the works of John Milton, and especially his epic poem, Paradise Lost. Near the end of book four of Paradise Lost, the angels guarding Eden discover Satan in Adam and Eve's bower, whispering into the ear of Eve as she sleeps. Although we never learn exactly what Satan says, we do learn something of the effect of his words. In book five, Eve awakens, distraught from an uncouth dream. Adam attempts to console her by explaining how dreams manifest new fanciful combinations as a result of the inner faculties, watchful senses, and external things. Adam's account of dreams and dreaming lays the groundwork for Milton's exploration of the relationship of mind, body, and world in Book 5 of Paradise Lost. To help us unpack this dynamic, we welcome Dr. Philippa Earle. Dr. Earle, could you please introduce yourself? My name is Philippa Earle. Um, I have a PhD in English Literature from the University of Exeter in the UK. Um, And I am very much a Miltonist. Milton is pretty much the entire subject of my research. Um, I'm particularly interested in his philosophy. Um, I'm currently working in sort of digital learning development. So I'm in that kind of early career stage where I'm sort of bumping around. Well, thank you again so much for coming to share with us your expertise on Milton. Milton and philosophy. And in particular, I wanted to talk today about Milton's monism. So I was hoping you might start with a definition of what monism is before we get to Milton's particular spin on it. This is, I'm just going to put it out there, a very complex um, subject to try and (laughs) summarize. So basically, I think when you're coming to Milton for the first time, um, even if you've kind of heard of Milton, um, but, but, you know, uh, just getting more familiar with him, um, I think something that might surprise you perhaps is that he was as much a philosopher as he was a poet or a writer. He was extremely learned. He read in several different languages and he had his own completely thought through comprehensive philosophy. We refer to this as monism because we've kind of adopted the the Greek word, the root of that word mono, which means single. That's because when we talk about Milton's monism, we're referring to his belief that there's a single principle that underlies uh, the entire universe. uh, And that principle is God or more specifically, God's substance, or God's material extension. So God himself is immaterial for Milton, but his material extension is the substance of all things. There are kind of several ancient theories of monism. Um, there, There are theories that exist in classical philosophy. Some of the earliest Greek philosophers asserted that there's a single cause underlying the universe. And actually something called hylozoism in classical philosophy is the idea that all matter is alive, either in itself or by operation of a kind of world soul. So Milton's view 
uh, um, of the universe is kind of comparable to this idea of a world soul. Milton's, Milton's contemporaries were really interested in this classical philosophy. So I like to kind of ask my students um, why the period that Milton writes in it is called the early modern period and also the Renaissance because it was very much a rebirth of classical ideas also. So, so it's important to remember that Milton's contemporaries and Milton himself were reading classical philosophy and being inspired by it in their own theories. And the 17th century has been called a vitalist moment. So there is this real kind of interest in um, matter as kind of animate and lively. So for Milton, just to come back to what that really means, it's the substance of God that gives matter itself vitality. Um, and Milton's monism is sometimes referred to as vitalism or animist materialism. So it's God's substance that animates matter. Um, and this is why for Milton, spirit is material. So spirit is just a more fluid and rarefied kind of matter. And we'll probably come on to talk about this in, in more detail, but Milton's philosophy is bound up with his theology. So in, in the 17th century, people really debated and interrogated the meaning of scripture. You know, they wanted to they wanted to really kind of inquire into all the details. Did the son of God exist in heaven before he was made incarnate on earth? Was, was the universe created from something or or was it created out of nothing? And Milton kind of tries to answer these questions in Paradise Lost and kind of um, encompasses them with his with his philosophy. Milton's scholars have been trying to kind of pin down more precisely what constitutes Milton's monism. And I think one of the most important works, um, if anybody's interested in this and wants to kind of read up more on this, is um, Stephen Fallon's Milton Among the Philosophers, um, which is just one of my favourite books and really kind of inspired me um, when I first came across this. From, from the evidence in Paradise Lost, Fallon uncovers what he calls a moral scale of materiality in the poem. A being's moral condition literally affects the substance of their body. So, for example, Fallon discusses how at the war in heaven in book six, the angel Michael pierces Satan's side with his sword. And Milton writes, then Satan first knew pain. And it's because of his rebellion against God that Satan has become morally distanced enough um, for his spiritual angelic body, which is a kind of fluid matter, to actually harden into a more material and denser body. And so he experiences pain from the sword. Um, and Fallon kind of points out how this, this has a, a biblical precedent because the Bible often kind of refers to sinners as having hardened hearts. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of literalizing that metaphor. What's really key about Fallon's work is that he is identi he's identified a moral material spectrum or a kind of continuity um, between matter and spirit. That's what I think is really exciting to look at in the poem. Thank you for that introduction. A couple things that really stood out for me. One, how for Milton and his contemporaries, this philosophy of monism isn't something that they create whole cloth, right? But something that they're inheriting from an ancient world and revivifying, if I can use that term in this context, right? But 
very much in a Christian context. And, in, and, and for Milton and his, many of his contemporaries, a reformed Christian context. So what is the relationship between spirit and matter is going to be different in the reformed church than it was both in the ancient world that was not Christian, but also in a Catholic world that preceded Milton. And at the same time, there's another change taking place. So there's that that renaissance, that rebirth of the classical in a Christian Europe. But there's also looking forward to, again, as you point out, the difference between renaissance and early modern. They're also moving in the 17th century with this idea in relationship to emerging science. And what through, for example, the Royal Society, what science is or natural philosophy is going to do to a theological philosophy as well. So these, as you point out, these questions about what's the relationship of spirit and matter, it's deeply immersed in a variety of conversations, if I'm hearing correctly. Absolutely, yes, and I think I think what you've kind of touched on is just kind of how um, interrelated these these concepts are. So philosophy, theology, um, politics, also. Mm. So um, there is some suggestion um, in in Milton scholarship. I know um, John Rogers, for example, suggests that this vitalist moment in the 17th century kind of emerged because of a change in the kind of power structures of the time. He sort of suggests that there's a link between centralised ideas of power, the idea of having a monarch. Um, and then when King Charles I is executed, he, he kind of suggests that that's, that allows for a decentering of power, um, republicanism, and that this maybe kind of influences the way people are starting to think about agency um, and the fact that actually matter itself can have vitality and, and um, even kind of consciousness. Maybe then we should we could jump into the episode and give students some concrete examples of how these ideas that Milton is working with and among emerge in, in the poem. Sure. First example that I think will be helpful is um, in book one, and it's from around line 84. Um, and this is when Satan first sees Beelzebub um, after they've fallen from heaven. Satan begins his speech, If thou beest he, but oh how fallen, how changed from him who in the happy realms of light, clothed with transcendent brightness, didst outshine myriads though bright. In this speech, he's he's kind of talking about the extent to which things have changed now. Their predicament has, has changed. And yet he goes on to say, yet not for those, nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict, do I repent or change, though changed in outward luster. And I think this is a really interesting passage because, first of all, there's this sense that he, he maybe doesn't recognise Beelzebub, um, his his kind of pal in from in heaven. There's there's this kind of new sense of uncertainty there. If thou beest he, um, and a sense that you know Beelzebub has lost his former brightness, but also that Satan knows that he himself has too. So there's something going on here. Um, as a consequence of their fall, they seem physically to have degenerated in some way. I also just think it's kind of ironic that the emphasis of this speech is on their changed situation. And yet Satan is insisting 
that he will not change. He will not repent or change. We're getting this sense of his fixed and kind of hardened mind. I wonder if there's also maybe a, a certain reciprocity going on here between body and mind or, or body and spirit. Satan and Beelzebub have fallen, so they are now in this changed, as you say, situation, and they're, they are physically changed as well, as if their situation and appearance, their bodily condition reflects their fallen spiritual condition. And even as Satan says, I'm not going to change, that insistence of being hardened, right, and, and fixed, then is reflected physically, right? So it's not just that, oh, you rebelled against God, and now you look different. It's also you, you look different. That goes hand in hand with your refusal to change the way you think and behave. Am, am I am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's kind of what's what's um, unfolding in this passage here. Mm. Is we're kind of getting this this sense that there's this this kind of contrast be- between um, Satan's kind of um, fixed mind uh, mindset um, and and the changed nature of, of of his kind of outward nature, his bodily substance. And I think this this is a um, potentially a good example of um, what um, I was talking about earlier um, in terms of um, what Fallon has, has identified as a moral scale of materiality. So, so we're starting to kind of think about how uh, maybe one's morality or immorality in the case of the fallen angels um, actually can have material bodily implications. Um, so this is a kind of first hint at that. Um, and when you start to kind of trace this in the poem, it can it can really kind of open up passages and just be really exciting to see kind of how Milton is, is imagining this idea sort of playing out. Um, and just, just as an extension for that, something that you your students might find interesting to think about as well is the connection between um, the fallen angels' psychology and the landscape in which they find themselves. Mm. Um, I think that's something that's really exciting to look at too. Um, And we do kind of see a sort of reflection of their kind of psychological state in their experience of hell. Um, So later on in book two, um, Milton describes the extremes of hell. We've got these kind of extreme landscapes um, over many a frozen, many a fiery alp, rocks, caves, lakes, fens, bogs, dens and shades of death. Um, so it's kind of like, it's kind of um, almost kind of literalising their intemperate kind of nature that they've they've disobeyed God. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's something that they are kind of experiencing in a more physical way and I think it's just quite interesting that that even sort of extends to the landscape and it sort of invites us to question then how Milton is using some of the language so even here I I just can't help thinking um, around line 48 the narrated the fall of the rebels from heaven with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire there's this kind of strange continuity between this kind of intellectual concept and and the sort of experience of that or a manifestation of that um and i just can't help thinking that adamantine chains really just makes me think of how adamant satan Mm. is that if the mental 
moral kind of psychology perhaps influences one's bodily state and potentially the landscape that actually those adamantine chains, those those kind of hard, impenetrable rock is you know, we can't help thinking that actually this is this kind of resonates with his his mental state mm. as well. One of my favorite moments in Paradise Lost, and I think is a nice kind of both compliment and counterpoint to what you're describing. It's at the beginning of book four, when Satan has just deceived Uriel in the form of a cherub and his flat you know, so his flattering appearance, his flattering language. Yet he doubts. It's kind of like that if moment when he sees Beelzebub. He doubts, right? He's confused. He goes through all sorts of emotions, right? Anger, sorrow, frustration. Uh, and it's described as r- rolling, right? His emotions are rolling and it becomes visible on his face so that even though he's still disgui- dis- disguised, excuse me, as the cherub, Uriel sees and goes, no innocent godly cherub is going to be that embroiled with passion. Something's wrong. So even as Satan is so fixed, he's constantly in doubt, constantly struggling with what he's going to do. And that uncertainty, that that, that revolution in his mind becomes physically palpable. And then later in book four, we see him you know, again choosing again to damn himself again and again as he enters Eden and takes on the form of these various animals, all of which are animals of prey or after the fall, right? Because there are no animals of prey before the fall, but like afterward. And so your, you know, your point that he is adamant and that the, those adamantine chains strengthen every time he has a moment of doubt and uncertainty. And should I pursue, continue literally moving forward toward humanity's damnation or should I turn back to God? Should I convert? And yes. that manif- that not only manifests physically, but it also seems like the physical choices shape the spiritual state. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And maybe this would be a good moment to jump to the, to the end of book four. Basically, um, God has seen what's going on. Gabriel has twigged. Uriel has gone to Gabriel and said... I thought there was a nice cherub that was asking for directions, but I've just recognised that he seemed alien from heaven. Um, a bit worried about this. And Gabriel says, hmm, you know, I think this is this is that fiend who has escaped from heaven um, and is causing trouble. And he sends Ethereal and Zephon down to paradise to kind of see what's going on. And they discover Satan squat to like a toad close at the ear of Eve. And that's that's just a lovely example of, of Milton using a simile potentially in a kind of literal way. I mean, is he actually in the form of a toad? Because angels can shift and take on different forms or is he just squat like a toad um milton's kind of constantly using language to kind of get us to kind of interrogate the language really closely and, and what's going on there um he's discovered there he's doing something um he's he's potentially inspiring venom at eve's ear so this is a passage that inspires kind of huge a huge amount of debate in milton's studies as to what what is satan doing is he actually affecting eve Eve later at the beginning of book five wakes from this really distressing dream um, and it's kind of debatable whether whether it was caused by Satan at this point. Some scholars 
argue that this is this is kind of a hint that maybe Eve might already be inclining towards sin or something, which is maybe a bit of an unsympathetic reading. However, um, he is discovered by Ithuriel and Zephon, um, and he starts up in his own shape. And around line 828, he's just really indignant that they don't recognize him. You know, he's really kind of puffed up with his own self-importance. And he says, know ye not then, said Satan, filled with scorn, know ye not me? You knew me once, no mate for you, there sitting where you durst not soar, not to know me, argues yourselves unknown, the lowest of your throng. Or if ye know, why ask ye, and superfluous begin your message, like to end as much as vain. And Zephon answers scorn with scorn, think not a revolted spirit, thy shape the same, or undiminished brightness to be known as when thou stoodst in heaven upright and pure. That glory then, when thou no more wast good, departed from thee, and thou resemblest now thy sin in place of doom, obscure and foul. You know, Zephon is kind of saying, look, you don't look the way you used to because you have sinned and fallen so we've got this this is more of a kind of explicit acknowledgement of what seemed to be hinted at in book one so yeah I just really like that contrast he's just he's just very puffed up and sort of full of his own self-importance but he doesn't realize that he is author to himself that one's morality really does kind of um you know write your future and write your your physical state and I, I think you're right. I hadn't thought about that simile at line 800, squat like a toad. But it does really seem to concentrate this problem. And also, even as it, it points up the significance, it evacuates of it. Because it doesn't really matter whether Satan is in the literal form of a toad or simply squatted in the shape of a toad. He is toad-like at this moment. He, you know, um, And his actions are, um, to the extent that toads were not necessarily idealized creatures in the 17th century associated with witchcraft and and the like, that that it it signifies in this physical and spiritual way through the the use of a simile itself. Yeah, Um, definitely. And it kind of pushes us, I think something that fascinates me with Milton's monism and this kind of simile is it pushes us to actually explore the more literal interpretation as well, hmm. um, which I just always, always for me, and ends up producing just really fascinating readings because you you can sometimes assume that Milton is just using a simile, but actually um, it can have a fascinating coexisting literal meaning. Um, and yeah, that seems absolutely to kind of underscore Satan's kind of venomous nature and his poisonous nature that he's, he's in some way trying to harm Eve. Monism isn't just evident in fallen creatures like Satan here, but also, you know, angels and humanity. And, and that really comes through in our our dialogue between Raphael and Adam in, in book five. And so I was wondering if we might turn then to, to book five and what we learn about the spirituality and materiality of humanity in particular, which of course Raphael explains by way of their own state. It's, it's really quite a cool description of, of Raphael arriving um, and 
Adam wants to kind of learn as much as he can. He recognizes that Raphael is this kind of um, more kind of intellectually um, refined being, um, and he wants to kind of learn as much as he can from him. Eve also, um, there's, there's quite a bit of detail on Eve kind of preparing their meal. So they're, they're preparing all these wonderful fruits from paradise for, to eat with the angel. Adam kind of says to him, um, I hope I hope this is going to be okay. I hope you're going to. I hope this earthly food will be acceptable for you as a, as a spirit. Raphael tells him, and he's talking about God. Therefore, what he gives, whose praise be ever sung, to man in part spiritual, may of purest spirits be found no ungrateful food. And food alike, those pure intelligential substances require, as doth your rational, and both contain within them every lower faculty of sense, whereby they hear, see, smell, touch, taste, tasting, concoct, digest, assimilate, and corporeal to incorporeal turn. And he goes on to say, for no, whatever was created needs to be sustained and fed. Um, and even the landscape then, he seems to suggest kind of mutually feeding of itself, which is really interesting there. So he says, um, you know, of elements, the grosser feeds the purer, earth, the sea, earth and the sea feed air, the air, those fires ethereal, and as Lois first the moon, whence in her visage round those spots, unpurged vapours, not yet into her substance turned. There's this kind of whole universal ecosystem um, of not just things that we would easily recognise as kind of animate beings eating food and needing to be nourished, but even things like the moon and the sea, um, he seems to be suggesting that everything is in some way fed and nourished by corporeal food that is digested, in particular angels. That's kind of like the point that, that Raphael's initially making is that every everything needs to be fed to be sustained. Um, so when he sits down to eat with um, Adam and Eve, Milton really emphasizes um, around line four, three, four. So down they sat and to their viands fell, nor seemingly the angel, nor in mist the common gloss of theologians, but with keen dispatch of real hunger and concoctive heat to transubstantiate what redounds transpires through spirits with ease. Um, so he's saying it didn't seem like he was. This angel really was eating physical food and transubstantiating it and digesting it. I think that is is showing us as well that, that there is this continuity of matter across all creation. So even angels that are more spiritual beings, they need to eat material food. Um, and Raphael says, you know, we just we just eat a different kind of food in heaven. It's, it's more spiritual, um, but he can still digest earthly food. Um, so again, this is this is kind of really quite more there's this this one um, one matter, this one first matter, um, as we'll come on to talk about, that that continues across all creation. If, if I can just interrupt here, there are two things here that that strike me as so important uh, in terms of the context in which Milton is writing. That sometimes the 17th century is referred to as this age of revolution. They, especially in England, culminating the Reformation from the Catholic Church to a, a Reformed Church, as well as the emergence, as, as I mentioned earlier, of modern science. 
And I think that those two events come together in the word transubstantiate at, that you just read at line 438, right? So for Milton here, transubstantiation is not c- Catholic transubstantiation, where the, the bread and the wine are uh, mysteriously turned into divine essence, right? The divine body and blood. Instead, it's a much more, bio, what we might say, biological or, or even you know, physical in the sense of physics, right? Matter isn't created or destroyed. It just changes form. That's the transubstantiation that's happening here along this uh, spectrum of vitalized materiality. Am I hearing correctly? I love that. And also, I think the significance of transubstantiate itself extends to all beings as well, because, mm. you know, we've been talking about this moral scale of materiality. So all beings, any any being imbued with spirit and life has the potential to transubstantiate, to, like Satan, um, move further from God and therefore become more material, um, or potentially to, to have a better relationship with God, move closer to God, and to become more refined. And and, and what you're describing really comes to a head at line 469, right? Oh, Adam, one almighty is from whom all things proceed and up to him return. If not depraved from good, created all such to perfection, one first matter all, endued with various forms, various degrees of substance, and in things that live of life. And then, and then later on, talking about this gradual scale sublime to vital spirits aspire, right? That there's this scale of nature going from the more material to the more spiritual, but there isn't necessarily an absolute, except for perhaps, there is no absolute of one or the other. Everyone and everything belongs on this scale. Am I getting that correct? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So this is this is a really helpful articulation of, of kind of what we've been trying to, to to pin down. So yeah, one Almighty is. So there's one God, and from whom all things proceed. So everything, all things proceed from God, and up to Him return, um, if not to pray from good. So you know you can you can move towards or further away from God. And one first matter all, there, there is that monism, that single underlying principle of the universe. It's one first matter all. Everything extends from that original um, material extension of God that, is, that exists throughout the universe. And, and the articulation of that scale, so but more refined, more spiritus and pure, as nearer to him placed or nearer tending. So um, mm. it's not a fixed scale. I think that's quite important. It's it's very much in flux. Um, and, and I think that's very interesting in terms of kind of morality itself. There is room to kind of go a little bit one way and a little bit the other way there is there is room to actually make mistakes and then go back to god and i think we see that at the end of book five abdul is kind of initially caught up with satan's suggestion oh let's rally around the angels and we'll we'll talk about how we're going to prepare to accept the son of god as our king and abdul goes along but then he hears satan saying so are you all going to submit to this guy, you know, and, and be ruled by him? Um, and Satan is kind of positing that as, as kind of subjection and that, that the son is going to have some kind of dominion over them. And, and he's, he's positing it in quite a negative way. 
Um, and Abdiel is kind of the only angel that speaks out and says, hang on a minute. You know, God has made this decision. God created you. God loves us. He knows what he's doing. Um, and basically, Abdiel is not convinced by Satan's arguments. And he is the only angel from that group of what then become rebels who turns his back on them and goes back to God. And he says to them, we can, there's still time to be pardoned. Pardoned may be found in time to sort. So we can still go back to God and ask for forgiveness. It's not too late. Um, but he is the only angel that ends up doing that. And I think that kind of illustrates this scale that, you know, you, you can you can make mistakes, but you can then go back to God. So it's a kind of sliding scale, um, which I think is really, it's just really kind of interesting that Milton has um, accommodated that. You know, to me, it seems more realistic. Mm. Um, there are not necessarily moral absolutes, but people, he, he leaves room for people to kind of figure things out for themselves. And as long as you don't stray too far from God, um, you can go back to him and he will love you and accept you and, and, and forgive you. That makes me think of two things. One, I'm thinking back to your point about how Milton's monism invites us to interpret metaphor literally. So Abdiel's return to God is literally, like he literally leaves the North and returns to, to, to God's side, which is also a spiritual yeah. And he had a choice there. He had a moral choice. So this is, a, this is a really nice illustration of that. He absolutely had a moral choice. He could have chosen to go along with Satan, as the other rebels do. Um, he could have kind of, you know, thought, hang on a minute, I'm not sure if I'm very happy um, suddenly having this person um, placed as my superior. And in which case he would have fallen further and would have fallen with the rebels. But it's his kind of love for God and his trust in God that he is kind of articulating and kind of reasoning that out and thinking, well, no, because God created us. Um, and, and this is why also at the end of book five, I think Satan has to deny that God created them mm. um, because otherwise he is admitting, as Abdiel is saying, that God is omnipotent and God is all knowing and all powerful. So what is the point in your rebellion? Um, but Satan won't admit that. He's no, no. Um, we were, you know, self-made um, by our own quickening power. I mean, it's kind of just reminded me of what we were saying earlier about sort of the idea of politics and, and how potentially the political context of the 17th century is related to um, the way people conceived of um, agency, I suppose. Um, Satan is good. That's quite an interesting example of that, that he's trying to kind of break away from God and, you know, potentially be thinking of things in a more kind of Republican way. Maybe this is a good moment for, for me to ask, other than being able to better understand this poem, which I personally believe to be a necessary and important, worthwhile end in and of itself. Why does perhaps an understanding of monism, why would that be important today, do you think? Like, why, why should we care about this 17th century philosophy and its theological, scientific and political connotations? Why does this matter for us beyond Milton? So, yeah, so I think... As we've said, it, it's it's really kind of exciting, imaginative idea. It really seems to kind of open up our understanding of the poetry. I suppose I'm I was thinking a little bit about 
17th century debates about free will and determinism, the question of whether humans actually have free will um, or whether everything is already determined by God. You mentioned um, that your students were thinking about um, particular themes like identity and things. Um, And I was wondering if we can maybe see a relationship between um, this 17th century debate over free will and determinism and maybe more recent debates over this idea of nature versus nurture, Mm. um, which maybe sounds a bit kind of wacky, but I think it's that similar that similar kind of core question of how much agency do we actually have over our own lives and how much is determined by um, our personality or our, our ability. Um, and I think there's there's quite a lot of evidence now to, to show that nurture is, is more important, but kind of surprising that that's still a relatively recent um, debate. Um, and I think that Milton's suggestion in Paradise Lost that ultimately... There is no sanctity in place itself, in in nature. Um, that his his you know Adam and Eve are expelled from paradise. They're forced to um, to cultivate overgrown Eden to kind of to start again. Um, and I think that actually really kind of connects to this idea of kind of continually nurturing the mind and and um, that he's kind of connecting it to quite a sort of modern um, debate really and the sense the, the, the importance of um, self-cultivating and nurturing um, rather than relying on your environment because yeah. in the end paradise becomes some barren island I think Milton describes seagulls um, <laughs> droppings on you know seagulls flying over and just messing on it um, and <laughs> So it's completely fallen from this kind of um, sacred place. And and again, it's kind of back to the connection between psychology and landscape that we were talking about in book one. Um, Is he kind of inviting us to kind of reorient place itself in the mind, in psychology, in morality, um, you know, that that kind of takes precedent over any sense of kind of nature or determinism? Um, and yeah, I mean, his his monism, because it is spirit, um, although it's materialism, that matter is spirit. And that's what continually allows for free will, um, because it's spirit that, that can allow movement and agency and will. Um, so it's like a kind of moral determinism um, that your will, although although there might seem to be this quite direct um, determinist consequence of your morality, I think Milton would see that as um, the spirit kind of having the agency and vitality to um, direct one's life and, and therefore individual beings do have free will. Right. Um, and, and yet, you know... I, I would I would offer a slight addendum to that because Milton does not deny, and I think in many ways Paradise Lost supports a recognition that our bodily existence, if not determines, certainly shapes what choices are available to us. Right. So, for example, um, I'm thinking about Adam and Eve's labors. Their 
labors are in no small part determined by their gendered bodies in this poem, both before and after the fall, especially after the fall, right? And so there there may not be a limit on the spectrum of spiritual experience and choice for Milton. But I do think he recognizes that the body puts its own limitations on what is and is not possible. Um, And there are other examples I'm thinking that kind of come toward the end of the poem with, but so, so there is, and this is maybe where my question about the relevance of this debate now, maybe, maybe this is where it's coming from. There's this, I want a nice pat answer. Is Milton on the side <laughs> of nature or is he on the side of nurture? You know, discuss. When in here again, there seems to be a scale or a spectrum where it's neither all one nor all the other. And it's it's up to us to, to choose well. What do you think? I, yeah, that's a really interesting point, and I hadn't thought about that. But it, it really, the the quotation that popped into my mind when you were talking about that was, "Till body up to spirit work in bounds proportioned to each kind." Mm. So, it's exactly what you have said that beings exist in different kinds. They can undergo um, this kind of transmutation towards a more spiritual, um, literally. More spiritual version of themselves but they remain within that category of being so um you know adam if adam had remained fully obedient he wouldn't become an angel because that's a different category of being although you'll say although the suggestion that um you know that they have these gendered roles um adam and eve i don't think for milton um difference means any kind of limitation or difference in value. Mm. Um, I think he describes the angels as being each in his hierarchy. I just think that's a really interesting articulation of hierarchy. It's not necessarily that everybody within this universe is compared to one another and that that they have different a different value, but that they all um, are a hierarchy to themselves, really. So, mm. um, you know, and perhaps that's, I don't know if that's an allusion to this, this the fact that they can, um, you know, become exalted within their own um, kind, proportioned to their kind. But I don't think he thinks of hierarchy in the way that we would assume. I think it means something slightly different to him. Um, and so, although we can think of Adam and Eve as being kind of bound within within nature, I think it's maybe, maybe it's not a, a great kind of um, get-out clause, but I think Milton would probably say that they are equally valuable and therefore they are not limited by the um the category of being that they are in if that makes sense that makes perfect sense I just wanted to ask if there were any points that you wanted to talk about that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. I suppose I could I could maybe just briefly say something about my current research. Um, sure. That's okay. yeah. So I've, I've kind of thought about a way of trying to express this in a way that hopefully will still be relevant to your student. My first article, um, I'm kind of sitting on a few, but um, such is the nature of academia. It's, it's a very slow process getting things out into the world. Um, but my first article is actually um, on the sequel to 
Paradise Lost, which is Paradise Regained. Um, and it tells Paradise Regained is basically Milton's um, account of the story of Jesus in the wilderness. Um, so from the Bible, when Jesus was tempted by Satan. And it doesn't tend to be a favourite in Milton's studies. Um, it's definitely not as popular as Paradise Lost. In fact, you know, many people listening to this probably haven't even heard of it. Um, and on the surface, it does seem quite a bizarre poem. Um, there's minimal dramatic action compared to Paradise Lost. Um, and scholars really seem not to know what to make of it. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, however, Milton's we know that Milton's nephew had said, I think it was to John Albury, um, that Milton could not hear with patience that, that Paradise Regained was inferior to Paradise Lost. Um, so <laughs> we know that Milton cared about this poem and that he liked it um, but but it's just really kind of unpopular and one of my breakthroughs in reading Paradise Regained um, came about having looked carefully at the dream narratives of Paradise Lost mm. um, so I was curious about how Adam's dreaming seems to uh, fuse his experience of the dream world with physical reality um, so in his early memory, um, he dreams that God presents him with food um, and Adam wakes to see and to taste that food in physical reality. And he also dreams of Eve's creation and wakes to see her existing in, in waking reality. So this suggested to me that in Paradise Lost, unfallen reality itself is kind of monistic. Um, and I've, I've written about that also in the article. So the dream world or spiritual reality, I think, is part of a continuous spectrum with waking reality um, and kind of waking physical reality. So with this in mind, um, I am kind of careful reading of the sun's dream in Paradise Regained, which, again, hasn't received much attention at all and is basically being regarded as incidental to the plot. Um, I discovered that I think Milton suggests that Jesus survives in the wilderness by dreaming that he eats with the biblical prophets. Mm. Um, this probably sounds like quite a bonkers idea, but um, I think it has two exciting foundations. So one is the that the possibility of dr true dreams um, is actually put forward by a Jewish philosopher commonly called Maimonides, and his work was well known in 17th century England. Maimonides teaches that supreme obedience to God and self-knowledge has the potential to transform the human intellect so that it can actually create a reality um, and that what is imagined can actually be real. And the second exciting foundation um, is that Jesus's achievement in eating with the prophets in his dreams in Paradise Regained, I think actually fulfills Raphael's prophecy in Paradise Lost um, and validates Milton's monism. So um, in the passage that we looked at um, in book five, when Raphael's talking about the scale of being, he goes on to say um, that um, time may come when men may, may um, participate with angels and find no inconvenient diet. Um, and he says, um, your bodies may at last turn all to spirit if you be obedient. So he's, he's telling Adam and Eve about the consequence of continuous obedience, which is that, first of all, they'll actually be able to eat angelic food. They'll be spiritual enough to actually digest this more spiritual kind of food. 
Um, and secondly, that if that continuous obedience, um, if, if their obedience continues, that eventually their entire bodies may turn all to spirit. Hmm. So it, re- it really kind of fulfills that prophecy that is first mentioned in Paradise Lost. Just to kind of touch on prophets as well. So um, in case people are wondering, well, why is that anything to do with prophets? Um, in the Bible, the same word is used to denote angel and prophet messenger so in his dreams um milton's jesus is eating with angels they are biblical prophets and prophets are angels so paradise regained i think (laughs) suggests that he that jesus has undergone the part of the um, monistic process outlined by raphael where body up to spirit work and he literally becomes more spiritual and capable of imagining and digesting spiritual food um, and <laughs> this has obviously thrown up a lot more questions um, that I hope I will have a chance to explore in the future. Um, particularly, um, I would love to learn more about Milton's Hebraism um, and how how I think this is really kind of amalgamated with his monism. So I think Jewish learning and his interest in Jewish philosophy is quite important for um, the formation of his monism. Um, so, yeah, so that's something I'd like to explore um, more. And just as a final thought on that um i was thinking about what really fascinates me the most about milton's work and um i think it is probably that even his most imaginative ideas something that sounds as absolutely bonkers as what i've just described in paradise regained it always has a logical foundation um Mm. and i think perhaps this is why i'm so obsessed with monism is that it really can um provide what seems to be from Milton, a very logical explanation for bonkers' ideas. Yeah. No, so, not you know, one one of the most famous moments in Paradise Regained is the moment when Milton describes Jesus standing atop the pinnacle. And the thing that fascinates me about that moment is it's it's described, I think, as an uneasy seat. And what I take from that is it's not like Jesus does this miraculously. It's an act of physical labor to stay balanced there. But if he has been nourished in this angelic way, has elevated himself uh, in this way, then while that feat of physics and physiology still boggles the mind, it becomes possible. Yes. And also there's that slightly ridiculous pun um, where Satan says to him, stand if thou will stand to stand upright. Um, (laughs) So, um, you know, again, he's drawing on physical standing and and how bearable that is, how mentally bearable the situation is. Um, So, yeah, definitely. That's a nice connection. (laughs) Well, thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I know I have learned a lot. And so I feel absolutely confident that my students will as well. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me.